Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning. How are you all? That is good. Or as we say in Australia, how are you? That doesn't translate. Obviously. Well, it's, it's, it's good to be here. Uh, I just want to begin by praying. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to come today. I just want to pray, Father, that we can just put everything that we've brought this morning with us down. Then, in a sense, we put down any worries. We put down any sort of emotional baggage that we're carrying. Put down worry and fear in particular. Put down personal agenda. We put down our flesh. And Father, we just pray that your spirit will now awaken our spirit, that as we open your word, your word will speak to us. We're called to be your salt and light in this city, to do an incredibly countercultural thing in this place. There's a story that's told about this town of Portland, but we gather this morning around a different story. So Father, speak that story into us. Sing it into being again. Spirit, talk to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. I am on a sort of... Uh, when I live so far away in Australia that uh, I come and just a couple times a year um, come and speak in this wonderful place called the Northern Hemisphere. And Australia being so far away, uh, I tend to just bunch things together. I had a number of things planned um, for this particular trip, but I really felt led to pray for what I was meant to do on this trip. And I had this funny feeling um, a few months ago that I had to sort of tack on to this trip a Portland leg and I wasn't sure why and I had no, you know, sort of the real reason to necessarily come here that no one had asked me to come and I just felt God, you know, said to God, why are you asking me to come to Portland? Is this something you're saying? Is this something I'm feeling? What's going on? Is this an excuse to visit Powell's bookstore? Lord, judge my, judge my, my desires of my heart and I just had this hanging over me for a couple of days. And I was walking to pick up uh, my kids from elementary school on my day off. And it was a nice sunny day. And I sat down. I just gave this to God as I was walking to the school from our house. And so I sat down by myself on a sort of bench, which is near the quadrangle there of the, the kids' playground. And it's like, God, just speak to me. Am I meant to go to Portland? You seem to be saying this. And about... 10, 20 feet in front of me, this guy just is standing. He's not talking to anyone. And all of the parents tend to congregate and talk. And there's just this guy standing there. And I think, you know, I've noticed him. Like, what's he doing? Is he just not moving? Who's he talking to? And then he sort of just turned around and faced me. And there, clear as day, he's wearing a Portland Timbers jersey. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I know it's a big deal in this town, but in Australia, like, no one knows about it. Like, um, maybe Real Madrid or something, you know, or Manchester United. But I'm like, okay, Portland Timbers jersey. As I'm walking to school, praying, should I go to Portland? I think you're saying something, God. But I feel like one of the 
reasons that God has, has asked me to come today is to speak a particular word into this church, but also, in a sense, into this city. So let's open the word today, and let's turn to um, Mark's gospel, the incredibly named Mark's gospel. And uh, we're going to turn to chapter 9, and we're going to look at verse 14. Just to set this up, what's happened just before this is that Jesus has done a couple things. First of all, he sent out the disciples on a kind of field trip. He's been teaching them. They've been living right up close to him, seeing how he does his ministry. He's discipling them. And then he sends them out in order to bring about the kingdom, to pray for people, to preach the gospel, to cast out demons. Then we have this moment which just precedes what we're about to read, where Jesus goes up to the mountaintop. Now, the people have been looking for a sign because they don't really want to have faith. They just want to see a sign so they don't have to you know, have any faith and just follow Jesus. They're demanding a sign. He, the crowd doesn't get to see the sign in the way that they want it. But at the top of this mountain, this small group of disciples, just a hand-picked few from the 12, get to see Jesus revealed in his glory in the transfiguration. This is a parallel to something that we see in the book of Exodus, where Moses goes up to the top of the mountain and receives the Torah, the instruction, the law of God. He comes back down and the people are worshipping idols. So that's playing in the background of what we're about to read. So they've been at the mountain, Jesus has been revealed in his glory, and now they're coming down into the valley. So we'll pick it up at verse 14. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them and some teachers of the religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe and ran to greet him. Now, I don't know about you, but we as humans have a sense of pride. Even those who think we're humble, we're often prideful in our humility. Now, if you'd walked in this morning to this service, and three quarters of the congregation had just turned and ran to you in wonder of you, most of us would struggle not to be overwhelmed with such an experience. Now, I don't know about you, maybe that's your normal experience when you go into public places, but it's not mine. I know if that happened, I would be overwhelmed, like, oh, goodness me, wow, you know. Jesus cuts through that and he's not overwhelmed by this rush of awe and wonder at him because he sees into the heart of humans. He sees what's really going on. So he's able to see past this adulation, not be overcome by the power of the crowd and instead sees something that's happening. He cuts through, verse 16, what is all this arguing about? That's the real drama that's occurring. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son to you so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. Instantly, we've gone from the mountaintop of awe, of spiritual experience, condensed into this moment of glory. Now we're back in the valley. We're back in brokenness. We encounter the emotions of a father 
the torture of seeing the son he loves oppressed, afflicted by this condition. Not only does his body go rigid, not only does he foam at the mouth and throw himself on the ground, he can't speak. Humans are creating the image of God. Humans speak because God spoke. God speaks the world into creation in Genesis. So not only is this young man afflicted, in a sense, it's like the enemy has come against his divine mandate, his stewardship, his humanity. So part B. So the man says, so I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, the, new, the NIV says, you unbelieving generation, how long must they put up with you? How long, I'll bring the boy, actually he says it twice, how long must I put, put, be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, fell on the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire, into water, trying to kill him. So this is not only a spirit which robs this young man's ability to speak. This is a spirit which his goal is to destroy and squash the life out of this young man. This is the full schema of the Antichrist power of this demon, to crush the image of God. Have mercy on us and help us, the Father says, with the caveat, if you can. He believes. He's brought the boy to Jesus. But there's this little lingering doubt, despite his wanting Jesus to heal, he says, if you can really do it. This is the unbelieving generation, the faithless people. What do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my belief. Now, what's going on here, and we see this when we read in the gospel stories of demonic possession is, yes, there is a demon afflicting this boy, but there's actually also a spiritual dynamic between the boy and the crowd. When we hear the story of Legion, here's this man afflicted by a hundred demons. He's have to be tied up with chains to protect himself and to protect others. When they're cast out of this man, and at the end of the story, we find him sitting at the feet of Jesus, restored, face cleaned up, made new. And instead of celebration, the crowd in that area become afraid. There's a link between the demonic possession of this boy and the unbelieving generation. Fear is at play. 
Sure, the people are not like the Israelites. When Moses brings the law down from the mountain, they're not like the Israelites. They're not making a golden cuff. They run to Jesus, proclaiming his name and greeting him in wonder. But underneath this, there's this fear and this unbelief, which masks and conceals a spirit. This is a kind of proto-cultural Christianity. We're on the surface. Faith is adhered to. The name of Jesus is spoken, but in the lower subconscious parts of the human, other doubts and unbelief exist. But there's this turning point. The father cries out, one of the, I think one of the best prayers in the Bible. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. He said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Jesus realizes and acknowledges this spiritual dynamic occurring in the crowd. Before the crowd grows into this entity which has this spiritual dynamic, before the crowd comes, he casts out this demon because he understands the spiritual dynamic of the crowd. Now that's true in a first century context. But I wanna just apply this to our day and age. We live at a time where we think we're ahead of some mob in first century Palestine where all of a sudden a riot could just erupt like this and a crowd pick up in some town square. That's not like us. You know, you're not expecting that to happen at Heart Coffee in Portland. But we live in a time and an age which is increasingly beset by a kind of hovering fear, a concern that something is changing, particularly in the West. No more is that more true in the West than in this country. Which is now adopting a kind of public discourse increasingly marked by fear. And this is exacerbated by the fact that we've connected to the world and we're connected to each other in a kind of digital nervous system which creates an ambient anxiety that's always hovering and ever-present, where the world comes at us and everything in the world that is shocking and, 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 and horrible is presented to us one time after another. It's kind of like, I heard someone say the other day, it's like a kind of mini-series, a TV series that you watch where no plot line is ever resolved. You're just hit with crisis after crisis after crisis and you become punch drunk. I flew here to the United States. It's always a long journey. I think I didn't sleep for 30 hours. And I flew via Hawaii this time, where I stopped for five hours. Now, when I was in Hawaii, I'd never been to Honolulu Airport. Um, I only knew of it from Magnum PI. Um, And it hasn't changed since since then. Um, And I'm at the airport, and about an hour before my flight, I'm like, wow, are they doing like building renovations? Like, are there big trucks like, you know, digging up stuff? Because I can feel this rumbling. 
I was in the bathroom and I looked at the wall and the wall was moving. Now, I'm from Melbourne. I don't know about earthquakes, but I'm like, is that an earthquake? And I'm looking around in the bathroom and no one seems panicked. I walk outside and like, okay, everyone's calm. I'm going to be calm. No one's panicked. Obviously, not an earthquake. They're obviously just digging up something in the airport. There's a little sort of road on top of one of the buildings. Maybe a bus has gone across the top. But it was a big sort of move. And I thought, okay, whatever. Get on the plane, fly five hours here. I'm trying to stay awake after being awake for 30 hours so that I can go to sleep at nine o'clock in Portland and click over into American time zone. We land in Portland, and there's a couple of guys in front of me who are buddies, and they're like, hey man, oh look, what's happened? He logs onto Twitter, I can see his cell phone, and he's like, there was just an earthquake in Hawaii. And this sort of goes around the plane where people start to say, oh man, that's happening. I get a text from Australia, like, there was an earthquake in Hawaii, are you okay? And I'm like, am I? Um, I don't know, like, and I'm looking around the plane, like, oh, people are like, you know, sort of shocked by this occurrence. And I'm thinking, this is so strange. You all were just in the earthquake and everyone was calm, and it didn't affect anything, and now we're five hours flight away, thousands of miles away in Portland, and it's on Twitter, so we're afraid now of the thing that we just experienced and weren't upset about. And so this hovering anxiety is now normative for so many people. For a lot of younger people, some of their earliest memories is September 11th. And it's been a cascading series of cultural shocks from the GFC to election results no one expected to see to cultural clashes. This is becoming normative for a lot of people. And at the same time, a kind of post-Christian reality is growing. That's been in my country for a longer time than yours. That's been in Europe for a longer time than yours. But it's galloping ahead, particularly in a city like Poland, where you're surrounded by a story that you constantly hear, that faith is no longer just something which is an oddity. It's actually almost something that's toxic. I remember the days when you would talk to people in my city, and there's a classic, I'm going to introduce you to an Australian slang word. It's called a wowser. A wowser was someone who was like a bit of a Puritan. They didn't get drunk. They were very much a prude around sexuality. They were a bit of a killjoy, a party destroyer. And Christians were always mocked as being wowsers. And Christians were the ones who were too moral. And at high school, when I had faith, my friends would say, you're the Christian, you don't do this or do that. Now what's flipped in a city like mine or yours is that weirdly now, the actual city sees itself as more moral than the Christians. That actually we're now the immoral ones. How can you believe that? So increasingly, a lot of my pastoral load is now dealing with people at work who are just facing increased pressure. Whose bosses sit them down and say, listen, you're a Christian. Is this going to be a problem? And these are not like people who are wearing like Jesus t-shirts to work and blasting out like, you know, worship songs in, in the cubicles of the open planned office. These are people who are really cool people, who are totally on the edge of hip, who are super nice. And so there is this story that's being told, and when you've got a world which seems to be going through cultural shifts, and at the same time, this increasing 
hostility towards faith, you can become afraid. Now, when you tell this story in America, people can say, I can understand that, because here particularly, one of the problems of the evangelical church is it's at times found itself in an alliance too much with the right, gone along with stuff unthinkingly. And so therefore, if we just undid that, that hostility wouldn't be there. Well, let me tell you the history of, very quickly, of evangelicalism in Australia. Evangelicalism in Australia actually aligned itself with the left, where Stuart Piggin, the historian of Australian evangelicalism, says there was a point in Australian history where you couldn't tell the difference between liberalism and evangelicalism. So we went too far to the left, and the culture still doesn't like you. You can position your place at any point in the political spectrum, and you're still going to find yourself in problems. And so at a moment like this, whether you're in an Australian or British context where sometimes politics has been too far to the left, an American thing where it's maybe too far to the right, however we've placed ourselves, this growing post-Christian trend where people want, in a sense, the fruits of the kingdom of God, of justice and equality, they want that and their hearts are shaped by eternity, so they want that reality, but they want it without the king. So as a church, how do you position yourself in a time and place? Well, the first thing to do is not be afraid. So let's read on. Verse 26. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet and he stood up. This is a portent of the resurrection to come. Things that look dead are again made to life by Jesus. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with the disciples... The crowd's not there. He's taken them aside. They asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. The NIV, I'm reading from the NLT. The NIV says, only by prayer and fasting. So what we have is a kind of spiritual reality that's linked to a fear in the crowd. And I want to suggest that at a time like this, we can fall into that kind of unbelief. And what it may be is not an unbelief where we don't believe in God. We don't believe in Jesus. But in a place like Portland or my city, it can be a kind of unbelief where you're following Jesus, but you know that the culture's against you. Many of your friends have turned from their faith. You go to work and you almost don't want to mention it. And you come here and you're like, oh, phew. And you sit here and say, oh, give me some more worship. Come on, keep singing. And then you go out into the world. It's like holding your breath. like, <gasps> And you head out and wanting to inhale the secular air. And the vision you have of Christianity is, man, we're just going to just try and survive this. We're just going to try and survive America 2018 and hopefully hold on to our faith. And so what happens is the unbelief is not one that comes into the church of secularism or unbelief in the church. You still believe the stuff, but what you've given into is a kind of posture of Christian defeat. 
when you've actually bought the mythology of the day that, yeah, Christianity is actually heading out the door and there's going to be a handful of us left and what's, you know, what's someone think of the children? In this story, you have a young man whose father deeply loves him, who cannot speak, whose body is contorted, who literally the evil one is trying to kill. And what happens is Jesus doesn't come in and go, okay, I'm just going to take the convulsions away. Or I'm just going to take the foaming away. He comes in and actually restores this young man fully. The crowd think he's dead. But Jesus brings him back to life. We are that boy. The culture thinks we're dead. The culture looks at us and just says, put a fork in it. It's done. It's over. Forget this. And so we are possessed by an anxiety. We are possessed by a fear. We're possessed by the cultural fear and the religious fear that the faith that we follow and love is disappearing. But what we forget is that the story that's told about secular cities like yours and mine is a story which doesn't align with reality. That actually, when you look at the history of Christianity, it's not like in 1100 AD, everyone went to church and then slowly it's just been dropping off every year. That if you look at the history of Christianity, in the 18th century in Britain, there was a Sunday where I think it was six people went to Easter service at Westminster Abbey. Six people. The English priest, Charles Simeon, goes to Cambridge University, started as a Christian university. It's so low, the faith in the culture, that as Simeon arrives and he's trying to write sermons, that literally people are out his window having sex in public. People talk about campuses being crazy now. When Simeon was at Cambridge and Oxford, that literally there were hundreds of students killed fighting each other. This wasn't like, oh, there was a riot on campus. This is literally murderous riots happening. Simeon goes and tries to get some theological education at Cambridge. Literally, the theological professors are so drunk and know so little gospel, it's just an absolutely pointless exercise. He goes to his church, Trinity, And as he's doing the service, the thing he's dealing with is not bored Christians. He's literally dealing with the fact that some of the reasons that the only people go to church is so they can start fracas in the church. And he's literally times where he's preaching and people are throwing rocks over his head and smashing the windows. This is Christian Britain. He wants to start a five o'clock service for people who can't make it there early in the morning, and his own elders lock him out of the building for several years. So what he does is, he says, what we're going to do is we're going to actually, we're going to get people to do this radical new thing. We're not even allowed in our church. So I'm going to find this core of people in the church, the handful who actually want to pray and read scripture and do something, and we're going to meet in someone's house. This is how small groups get born. Small groups get born because... 
cultural Christianity was so low in the 18th century Britain that they had to meet in houses because they were locked out of church by their own elders. People actually put bars across the seats so people couldn't sit down because he believed in faith too much. He took it too seriously. The insult of the day was to call someone an enthusiast. And yet, through his prayer, through his investing in a group of leaders, God starts something with this small remnant. And out of that comes this revival. Out of this comes Wesley and Whitfield. The gospel goes out across the world again. And in the 19th century, in this mass of globalization in the British Empire, when all these terrible things happen, when there's slavery, genocide, imperialism, underneath that, God is doing this underground kingdom thing. That's my family's story. When my relatives are taken from the UK because they're too poor. When Britain was trying to get rid of its lower class citizens, and they send them to the ends of the earth to get them as far away as possible because they used to send them to the United States. So when the American Civil War happens, they have to dump these people somewhere instead of letting them rot in the hulks of ships in the Boston Bay. And so they send them to this place called Tasmania, literally Mars. They put them in a prison where the people's names are taken away. Where the guards actually have fabric put on the bottom of their shoes so that people wouldn't hear another human being. Where they're given a number instead of a name. That's where my relatives end up. And in that place, people who were mentored by Charles Simeon in Trinity at Cambridge come The parish system's broken down. People don't know how to do church. And they come and they start sharing the gospel. One guy can't get permission from the Australian authorities to preach the gospel. So he says, can I just preach to the prisoners who are condemned? And he speaks to them on the night before of their hanging. And he says, my parish is the 30 feet between their cell and the gallows. And he would walk with them share the gospel, and the story is told that as many as they received the gospel about to have the news put around their neck, that some spoke in tongues for the first time as the trapdoor was pulled. God, at moments of crazy cultural upheaval, when the principalities and powers seem to be triumphing, does this secondary story. That's a story which intersects with the gospel going out through the world. How people across the world, often who were marginalized by that system, ended up being the most faithful adherents of the gospel because God uses the foolish ways of the world to confound the wise. And in a city like yours or mine, which is prided itself on the fact that it's different to the rest of the country, that it's more enlightened, that it's more progressive, that it's more further forward, that actually in cities like that, the story of secularism doesn't win, that actually God will make fools of the wise. So in a time like this, when we can give into this kind of cultural anxiety, God actually says something different. In the book of Philippians, he says, I'll read it to you. 
In chapter one, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come to see you again or only hear about you, I will know you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. NIV says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. Now, this is not just saying individuals. This is actually saying the powers and principalities. You fight back in spiritual warfare by not being afraid. Edward Freeman, who wrote a book called Failure of Nerve, was a rabbi and a family systems therapist. And he said, in any toxic human community, be it a family, a workplace, a church, or even a nation, Humans trend towards fear, anxiety, and toxic behavior. But what can turn it around? Friedman said he would look for, when a family came to him that was super dysfunctional, he would look for not necessarily the head of the family, the loudest person. He would look for the person who seemed to have the most chance of becoming a non-anxious presence, becoming a person of peace. Release that person into that environment. And initially, they're going to get kickback. Initially, they're going to get resistance. But what will happen is they will become this non-anxious presence, this gift of peace, which transforms that entire environment. At this time in history, in places like Portland, in countries like the United States, in the Western world, it's actually God's mission to send people created in the image of God to be non-anxious presences. You can't be afraid. And when you see cultural Christianity burning up in your lifetime, praise God, because it needs to go, because what's left when cultural Christianity burns up is a remnant who really believes. The revival that happens in the 18th century in Britain starts with people who fully believe. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said in exegeting this passage, in 1959, when he looked at secularism growing in Britain, he said secularism is not like previous revivals where all people had to do was switch back onto their faith, where they still trusted the Bible, they'd just forgotten it, that actually, he said, secularism is a kind of demon that only comes out with prayer and fasting. So in a city like Portland, where you can sit back and come in here and and just try and and inhale the worship before going back into the secular air. You can fall into this place of unbelieving, not hearing that God wants to do something again in this time. But he says to churches like yours and mine, how much do you want it? Are you willing to contend? Are you willing to pray and fast and actually turn your hearts again to me? Now, some of you may hear that, I go, man, I did that. When Imago kicked off and we started this thing for a number of years, we pushed into that. And I've been doing that for a long time. Well, I want to say today, and I want to speak over this congregation, that God is a God of second chances. Some of you, particularly in your older years, remember times in your past when God did things, but now it seems like that's past. I want to say God has a second chance for you. And a city like Portland, 
God has a second chance. After cultural Christianity burns away, God has a second act. As God is coming against the powers and principalities of our age, where every industry, every sector seems to be falling apart from tech to Hollywood to left-right divide in politics, everything is being undermined, even parts of the church which have aligned themselves to earthly power and not the gospel, God's judgment is coming against at this time. And that is part of God's plan. Secularism, Leslie Newbigin said, was God undermining every earthly power that is not Jesus Christ so that humans are only left with the option of believing in Christ. So I want to say that I believe that God wants to do something as he has done through history, which is to, in cities where people say, Portland, Pacific Northwest, it's got European levels of church attendance. What if God wants to do something again? What if like the announcement that we had where there's this incredible technology where we can then see how people are praying for their cities? What if God wants you all to start walking around your city and that invisible network of prayer where God starts a new story again? What if he wants to do that again in this time? I believe visiting this city Over the last couple of years, something is happening. This church laid foundations and made some of that possible, but the story is not over yet, and God's story is not over for you, nor is it over for this city. But you need to go into that room with Christ. You need to get away from the crowd. You need to steal physically be present in your culture, but your anxiety cannot be driven by the world because it's infectious. You need to, as the disciples do at the end of that story, to separate yourself with the presence of the living Jesus and allow him to set your emotional temperature. And when you do that, you start setting this different kind of temperature where people go, hang on, okay, yes, your boss may be against you, everyone may think you're a weirdo, but there's going to be one person maybe in your office and go, I see something different in you. We, for the first time in Melbourne, are having people walk off the streets into our churches and saying, I've never seen this in my life, in the last two years, saying, I can't trust politics, I can't trust entertainment, I can't trust anything. What is this Christianity about? That's coming. Are we preparing for it? And are we building a spiritual foundation now for what God wants to do in the future? We are called to contend. This demon only comes out with prayer and fasting. Are we going to do something different now, damn to hell, the spirit of Christian defeat. It's not our identity. It's not our inheritance. We're called to walk in the spirit of victory, and we need to reawaken that by connecting into his spirit who wants to do something corporately and individually here. So some guy from Australia saw a Portland Timbers jersey at an elementary school And God got him on a plane and sent him here because if it was some from Portland, it'd probably be too obvious. And he came not because I'm anything special. I've only had three hours sleep. I'm not that great. That actually God has a message that he wants to do something again in this this city. And he wants to cast out a demon 
of disbelief and bring together a people of God who show the kingdom of God. That's the best witness in this time when America seems to be going crazy. I think that's the end. I'm going to pray. Jesus, I just want to pray, Father, that we can turn to you again. I just want to pray off cynicism. I want to pray off doubt. We know that it's thick in this city, and it's been thick in churches at times, Jesus. We just want to pray off the belief that by being cool and hip and edgy and nice to people, that somehow that's going to bring about the kingdom of God in a city like this. We know, Father, that this thing doesn't come out without prayer and fasting that we need to march around Jericho. Jesus, let us not be seduced by good coffee, slick design, nice trees. This is a beautiful city in so many places, but in many ways, it's a spiritually sick city. And we've been placed here, the people in this room, as messengers of your kingdom, an alternate story. I just want to pray in Jesus' name the word of a second act over people in this, particularly people whose hearts are spiritually broken. Mend those hearts. Give a new story. Do something different at this church. Put away, Father, any human striving. Just dispel it in Jesus' name. Help us just to center ourselves around you. We know now it's not going to be any technique. Help us to become your people of God. Help us to reflect your heart. Help us to be something at this time when the nation seems torn apart into tribalism. Help us to be the people of God. Not because we even think it's going to impress the powers and principalities. It'll actually annoy them. Father, shape us into your people. Help us to be the symphony that you're playing in this city. Each life an individual note that those who have ears will hear. Jesus, cast out this demon of disbelief in your name. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.